My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome. We're grateful that you're here with us. We continue today through the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, what in the world is Deuteronomy? Well, you go to, back to the beginning, the first book of the Bible, Genesis. God makes everything. Humanity screws it up. God's like, well, I promise I'm going to fix it. And then he establishes a people to do that. And then Exodus, the second book of the Bible, God redeems and rescues those people out of slavery in Egypt and creates a, a mechanism by which he can dwell with those people in the tabernacle. And then Leviticus, book number three, God gives people the law by which they can be holy and set apart just as he is holy. And then in Numbers, God continues to lead and guide his people despite continual mess ups. And in Deuteronomy, God is reminding the people of who they are and whose they are by the second giving, the second iteration of the law, preparing them to enter into the land that has been long promised to them. Last week, Gary preached on the grace of known expectations. One of the things that differentiates God from all the other false gods is that God laid everything out on the table for his people. And today we continue with one of those expectations in particular, and that's in Deuteronomy 4, and it's all about idolatry. It says all about idols. And while chances are you haven't gone out and gotten a big chunk of wood or stone or bronze and carved you out some bale for you to bow down to on Friday night, nonetheless, our culture has some idol issues. And some of us have some idol issues. And we're going to talk through those together. Bow your heads with me. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to continue together in worship. Lord, to look at your word together. And so, God, as we talk through the ways that you challenged your people, Lord, I pray that that would be fresh for us, that we can think through, God, some of the things that need to be dismantled, some of the comforts that we need to do away with. Lord, that, that you would provide that sort of uh, correction and encouragement, God. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Actually, gonna, I'm going to take this off. Uh, my Apple Watch talked back at me last service. And, uh, and I put it on just because, blah. Chucked it. You missed it. I chucked it across the room. All right, now it's just there. Deuteronomy 4. If you have your Bibles, you can open there. I'm going to read, start us off in verse 15. I've got to find it myself first. There it is. Diligently watch yourselves, because you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you out of the fire at Horeb. God reminding them, I didn't have any form. I didn't having a, a, a likeness, a shape. There, I, I wasn't physical. I wasn't tangible in the way that you're trying to make me or make other gods with idols. Verse 16. So you don't act corruptly and make an idol for yourselves in the shape of any figure, male or female form, or the form of any animal on earth, any winged creature that flies in the sky, any creature that crawls on the ground, or any fish in the waters under the earth. Now, today I'm going to talk about three kinds of idolatry that are going to come out in this text or that are assumed by this text that God speaks against. And with these first opening verses, there's two in particular that God is addressing. One is that they are not to make an idol to represent him. And two is they are not to make an idol representing a false god around them. We're going to start with the first one. But before we get there, we've got to give a little bit of background what were idols? How did they function with, for the people surrounding the Israelites as they entered the promised land? 
we actually know quite a bit about idol practices, not just for the Canaanites, but for Egypt, for Mesopotamia at large. I'll have some photos that we get to a little bit later. But what would happen is people went out and they would take chunks of wood or stone or bronze. They would take them and they would shape them and they would form them into the things listed here in the passage not to do. And as they did that, sometimes halfway through as a part of that process, there would be a ceremony or a ritual that they would perform in order to drag, entice, lure the essence or vitality of a particular deity into the thing. And they would finish shaping it and they would do uh, in some places what's called the opening of the mouth ceremony. And that was, again, another ceremony, a ritual by which the life of the God entered into the thing. And then they would treat this thing very, very special. They would wash it. They would bring food to it a couple times a day. They would dress differently around it. They would play certain kinds of music. They would offer incense. All of this in exchange for the particular kind of fortune or favor that they were seeking. So hear this. God says, don't make any idols. Many of us, if you've been around the church a while, you jump immediately to Baal, El, Asherah, these foreign gods, you're not supposed to bring them into your home. One of the things God doesn't want is for people to be under the impression that they can lure or entice him, purchase his favor, drag him into the home and perform all this stuff like they're meeting a human need. Because God doesn't operate like that. One particular quote, Edward Curtis, historian, to the Egyptians and Mesopotamians and almost certainly to the Canaanites as well, Images were not the inanimate objects that the Hebrew prophets insisted they were. Rather, they were living, feeling beings in which the deity was actually present. Another quote, this is from the Met. Because of the millennia-long belief that such objects could embody the essence and power of the deities they depicted, these images presented a challenge to new religious ideas that classified them as pagan gods obviously worded from a secular perspective. You and me are that new religious idea that classify them as pagan gods. And so for the people who might be tempted to think of Yahweh, the Yahweh that brought them out of Egypt, the Yahweh that brought them up to the promised land, tempted to get Yahweh into their home, to get Yahweh's presence into their life so that they can get out of him what they need on any particular given day or moment, depending on whatever it is that they're going through. God has zero interest in being made small in that way. He has no interest in thinking that you can provide for him, meet his needs in order to purchase some sort of favor or fortune from him. The song and the dance. I was thinking through this week, I wondered to myself, this kind of idolatry this, uh, that, that makes God so small. Where does it exist today? You know where? Prosperity teaching. There are preachers in this world that are all about you, your health and your wealth. And they don't talk a lot about the gospel. They are obsessed with on this side of heaven, what you get instead of who you get, and instead of who you become. And for it, for this very cheap, small God, they charge a large, costly price. 
And I spent time listening to some of these telecon artists this week. I have a few actually here. First one is Mike Murdoch. I listened as this guy taunted his congregation, calling them jealous as he bragged about not just buying one jet, but because of God's immense favor on his life from all the money that he took from the people that he asked money for, he bought a second jet that was worth three times the cost. Guys influenced millions and millions of people. I listened to Creflo Dollar preach that no one could squash his dream of buying a $65 million jet. This is a preacher, by the way, who believes and teaches that the Trinity had a baby and that that baby was Adam. And in the same way Jesus was a body filled with God, so Adam was God. And so you and me are gods. This is a preacher with millions of followers. And apparently they gave him enough money to buy a $65 million jet. Third, I listened to this guy named Ken Copeland. Another guy who, after buying some 20 or $30 million jet proceeded to use it for, for personal things like ski trips and exotic hunting trips to Texas of all places because he would have exotic animals imported there so that he could shoot them. Al Mohler, in responding to this problem of the prosperity gospel, particularly responding to Joel Osteen, Al Mohler says this, and the central problem of the prosperity gospel is not that it offers too much, but that it offers too little. It turns the eyes of his audience away from the glory of the eternal God to a God who is a cosmic butler, which is what the people were after when they wanted Yahweh to get into this thing in their home. He was responding Again, to Joel Osteen in particular, he's another famous prosperity teacher. When asked once, why don't you talk about redemption? Your sermons with sin. Those are the two words, sin and redemption. Quote, direct quote, he said, it's not my aim to dwell on technicalities. I want to help people sleep at night. And as I listened to these, I actually listened to some of the teaching, and it got me visibly angry this week, I went into Gary's office, took a break, and I was kind of trembling a little bit. There's one story in particular. In 2004, a woman named Barbara Power died of cancer. And they went and they looked at her journals. And they found out that she never sought treatment for cancer. Why? Well, because she was a huge follower of Ken Copeland. And Ken Copeland, when he preached, said, if you send in money, God's going to bring his favor into your life. God's going to bring his healing into your life. So she didn't go to a doctor. She sent him money, and then she died. She never got treated. Christians bicker with each other, each other over the stupidest things at times. And we get angry with each other over little things. This you can be angry about. There's a word that God uses in Scripture, scubala. Stronger than crap, but not quite an expletive, okay? But it's a word that God uses. It's a, it's a word that God uses, all right? These preachers are total horse scubula, okay? That's God's language. That's not my language. I didn't say that first service, by the way. I saved it for you. This kind of idolatry, listen, it shrinks God. God is not interested in being this small. He did not want the Israelites to make an idol of him, 
bribe and lure and entice him into giving them whatever sort of particular thing would meet their comforts, their the fortune and favor that they desired. In verse 20, God actually says to this people, just two verses later, but the Lord selected you and brought you out of Egypt's iron furnace to be a people for his inheritance as you are today. That word selected, some of your translations use the word take, but this is a word, this is the idea of to take for possession. This is the same word used when, when, a, husband, when a spouse, a husband or a wife would choose someone to marry or would choose someone for their kids to marry. So I like that the CSB brings out this idea of select. The Lord selected you because what's interesting is that in the process of idolatry, people weren't under the impression that God did the selecting. They were under the impression that they did the selecting. They went out and they chose the wood. They took the wood. They went out and they selected the form that they were gonna make. They selected the food that they were gonna feed and when they were gonna wash. They selected the music and the incense, hoping that they could get God's favor by doing all this stuff and meeting his needs. And God responds with, whoa, 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 whoa. I selected you. I brought you out of Egypt to be a people Inheritance, as you are today. Idolatry shrinks God. So as I come to the close of this first point, if you come across someone preaching about this kind of God, someone asked me after service, what do you do about this? Let me just be honest. I'm not quite sure. Some people get upset when you call people out and you say you're being judgy. You gotta read the New Testament, man. Paul, John, and Peter, it's all they do. I'm just kidding. They do more, but they do it a lot. They do it a lot. But you change the channel. And if you hear someone talking about sowing into God's favor or activating your blessing, nine times out of 10, you probably gotta find something else. You probably have a telecon artist to avoid. Idolatry shrinks God, but it doesn't just shrink God in this kind of way because people weren't just tempted to turn Yahweh into an idol in their home. He wasn't just talking against that, but also against bringing in gods from the foreign peoples. Point number two, idolatry exchanges our maker for the things we make. I actually have some photos here for the history buffs. This first one is a Canaanite statue from the 13th to 14th century. It's the head of the Canaanite pantheon of gods. The name is El. The second one is an Egyptian god, the god of the dead, Osiris, from the 14th to 15th century. This is from the Met. These roughly from very, very close time period is when the book of Deuteronomy was being written. What does God have to say about these kind of gods? Isaiah 45, 20. Come, gather together and approach, you fugitives of the nations, those who carry their wooden idols. All right, these ones aren't wood, but they had them. Wooden idols and pray to a God who cannot save, have no knowledge. But why? Why would they do this? Why would this be such a temptation? The nations worshiped other gods to hedge their bets and Israel felt tempted to do the same. Much of their idolatry, honestly, like, like ours is rooted in a desire to feel safe or protected. And perhaps those gods, if we bring their presence into our home, that they could provide that. They thought an idol could do that. The kind of idolatry met the yearning for stability that people sought out, assuming, again, they did what was necessary for their God to come through. For some, this kind of idolatry satisfied a craving for sensual pleasure. 
And what in the world? And one of the practices of the Canaanites was temple prostitution. And because the god Baal and the goddess Asherah had to come together, Gary used a very wholesome word last week that I love, to, and copulate, in order for them to come together, uh, people had to lead by example. In order for the rain to come and the crops to grow, that had to happen, but people had to. And so you imagine the men are like, oh man, I'm really sorry, hon. The grapes aren't gonna grow if I don't go in and do this thing. All right, I got an appointment with the temple prostitutes today. We're gonna make sure, make sure everything gets provided for. Our idolatry let them get away with things. And while they couldn't see Yahweh, all they had was his past faithfulness in their minds. And for many, it wasn't enough. They were tempted to tie all of their desires, the things that they yearned for, to something that they could physically see, touch, and feel. And isn't that something that we can relate to? A bit of extra assurance. Something to add into my life that when things get hard, when things get challenging, when I'm wondering how I'm going to get through, that'll tell me it's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. They built their idols out of stone, wood, and bronze. We build ours out of something different. Some of us build idols out of things, out of stuff. And when life gets hard, what beats retail therapy? Some of, us, some of us build idols out of our space, our home, our spot. I don't care if everything outside my home, it might be falling apart, but as long as this looks really good when people get here, maybe they'll think I have my act together and that'll make me feel okay about myself. Some of us build idols out of our investment accounts, our retirement funds, whatever comes our way and whatever lack of assurance exists in our world, uh, I can see that number and the stock market's gone up and I can feel comfortable knowing that at least that's there. Some of us build idols out of drinks or drugs. I'm not talking about medicine, I'm talking about escapism. Idolatry exchanges the maker for the things that we make. These people were dragging stone and wood and bronze into their home to represent some sort of assurance that Yahweh should have been plenty of for them. Number three, Deuteronomy 4.19, he continues. When you look to the heavens and see the sun, moon, and stars, all the stars in the sky, do not be led astray to bow and worship to them and serve them. All right, because they looked up and again, treating what was in the sky as God's, the Lord your God has provided them for all people everywhere under heaven. Third and finally, idolatry exchanges the creator for his own creation. So on the one hand, you have the kind of idolatry that shrinks God. On the second hand, you have the kind of idolatry that, that replaces God for the things that we come up with. And then you have the kind of idolatry that exchanges the creator for, for the good things he's made for us to enjoy. God designed the natural world. He put its laws into motion, just some examples. But as we think about that, and we got a lot of math and science people in our community, there are people who worship the laws of physics over the God that made them. There are some people who put more hope in, the, in, in math than the God in which their rules and logic find their basis. 
There's some people who find the beauty of our biological complexity far more attractive than the God who finely tuned the details of our body's chemical information systems. And somewhere in the course of scientific progression, when people started to figure out, wow, this is how God designed things to be, for some reason that gave them cause to remove God altogether. Doesn't make any sense. It's not just in academics, but in relationships. God designed relationships to be good, to be life-giving, to be edifying. Friendships and marriages, but we twist, we abuse, we manipulate them into self-serving, me-centered coexistences. God designed marriage. You know, interesting thing. The enemy will do everything he can to get you to have as much sex before marriage and as little sex after you get married as possible. God designed sex. Can I just... Sex is awesome. I know from experience. I have four, three kids, one on the way. Prove it. But listen, listen. You're not getting toxic purity culture here. Listen, the ultimate expression of self-giving love, this is what sex was designed to be, the ultimate expression of self-giving love designed for a man and woman fully committed to one another in marriage in their entirety, meaning that you bring your mess and I bring my mess, all right, not you and me, that would be wrong, but two people bring their mess and all of their baggage and get to expose one another in their entirety and they get to respond in fully self-committed, self-giving love. That's what it was designed to be and it's beautiful. But when sex becomes an idol, it becomes all about what you want and it ruins it. And in the face of all this idolatry, what does God say? What is one of the reasons he gives for the lack of tolerance that he has with this? Deuteronomy 4.24 for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now, that word jealous, you hear, you hear, someone, you hear someone talk to you about being jealous of something, oftentimes you, you associate some sort of insecurity with that. And I thought this week, what does it mean to experience jealousy in a righteous, holy kind of way? Can you think of an example in your life when you felt jealous, but you were right on the money and you did it in a righteous way? I just want you to picture, picture this scenario for me. And what's, what's sad is the scenario I'm about to describe is one that's been lived out by some. But I want you to imagine that you are a single parent raising a child and that you've poured your life into this child, that the other parent skipped out and so you changed the diapers. You made the meals. When they messed up, you did the discipline. You dealt with the screams. You dealt with the late nights. You dealt with the sleeplessness. You sacrificed in order to serve this child. And at some point as this child grows up, the other parent comes back in the picture. We'll put that parent in quotes. They come back. And so they start getting some visits. And when that child goes over there, they don't get discipline. They get whatever they want. And finally, this kid gets old enough to go to the courts. And they get to choose where they want to go. And they have to choose between you and the one who doesn't actually care, doesn't actually do anything, but allows the kid to do whatever they want. 
And the child points to that parent and says, I'd rather go with them. Because our God designed you beautifully for a purpose. God has a design for you. He has a beautiful design for your relationships. He has a beautiful design for marriage. He has a beautiful design for sexuality. He has a beautiful design for money. He has a beautiful design for generosity and how you treat your stuff, how you relate to others, how you bear burdens of the people around you and how you build up people with your speech. And sometimes we're that person who says, I would rather just do whatever I want. So give me the idol. And if God's that parent, then how much right does he have to be jealous? Plenty. What's our problem today? Our problem today is that because the idols aren't put up in display cases in our homes, that it's so much easier to merely let them coexist with us. So we're going to talk about that. Colossians 3.5. Therefore... How are we supposed to respond? How are we supposed to respond? Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Listen to the language, put to death. 1 Corinthians 10, 14. So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. It's not how close can I get. It's, wow, that's idolatry. I'm headed in the opposite direction. My exhortation to us today is that we actually do something about it. So we have a slide here. You can put up the list. I want you to hear me, want you to hear me. The things on the right are not in and of themselves bad things. And this list is not exhaustive. They're not in and of themselves bad things. But the things on the left are good things that God has called us to in this world. And what happens in an idolatry, in a life that is entangled in idolatry, and in a life that spends so much time taking care of, putting the hope and love and affection into into something that has turned into an idol, is you end up sleepless, exhausted, overly busy, loveless, and graceless. That's what idolatry does to a person. So as as we go through this, if you feel yourself getting defensive, that just might be the Holy Spirit saying, is you a little bit. I ask that you would reflect along with me. Hear this. God has called and designed you to rest and to rest well. But there are some who are so utterly dependent on caffeine and who are so one with their phone that you can't remember what rest is like. We are called to live lives of generosity, okay? You mentioned the caffeine screen thing. Some of you might be like, no, 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 that's just called parenting, right? Okay? You, you get a pass for being up with your kids, okay? Well, if this is an issue, well, then that's between you and God. This is all between us and God. We're called to live lives of generosity. Generosity doesn't require you to have a certain size paycheck. It doesn't require you to have a certain size home. You can be generous and poor. And when I lived in Mexico with people who had nothing, some of the most generous people I ever met. Hospitality. For some of us, we turn our stuff that we don't need and space that we never use into an idol. And the idea of hosting someone in our home is so exhausting because I have to clean up all the stuff I don't need and I have to clear all the space I never use in order to make it look good. And so if you have... 
So if this is you, that's between you and God. If this is you, get rid of stuff. If your home's an idol, sell it and buy a smaller one. It's between you and God. A career is not necessarily a bad thing. But if you getting an A at work costs you getting a D plus at home, then you got an idol problem. You cannot serve your boss, look to serve your boss better than you serve your spouse and kids. And I'm not talking about people being gone for work. I'm talking about when you're home, the kind of person you are when you're there. If that's the case, you may have an idol problem. And then finally, you can add social media to the news there. Interesting study that I came across, they actually found that the more news people watch, all right, the less people in general want to be around you. I don't read the details of it. I just read the summary, but I was like, that's interesting. So if you find yourself ingesting CNN, Fox, MSNBC, four, six, eight hours a day, and people, people just stay away from you. There's your reason. Probably because your love and worship of that idol has strangled the grace and peace out of your life. Now here's the deal. If one of these resonates with you, and there's many more, do something. Do something. Talk to a spouse or a friend. Do something. Because if the Israelites went before God and God said, get rid of the idols, I'll tell you what response wouldn't have worked. I'm sorry, God, I really need that idol for work. I really need it for work. The crops won't grow if I, don't, if, if I get rid of the idol. This is more important. It would be better for you to make, for some reason I skipped this, it would be better for you to make less money and have less things and love your family well than to be a hot shot and them to feel abandoned and neglected. But the truth is, no matter who you are, at some point we'll fail, myself included. And every time my kids mess up, I feel the need to remind them Dad, that messes up too. As I watch them just get down on themselves. Dad, that makes mistakes too. We're going to mess up. So we're going to skip down to the last seven verses in this passage. Because God tells his people they're going to mess up. Verse 25, when you have children and grandchildren and have been in the land a long time, and if you act corruptly, make an idol in the form of anything and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, angering him. I call heaven and earth as witness against you today that you will quickly perish from the land you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. You will not live long there, but you will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples. You will be reduced to a few survivors among the nations where the Lord your God will drive you. Then you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone which cannot see, hear, eat, or smell. You see that? People are going to get into really hard times. So what are they going to cling to? What they can see. But from there, you will search for the Lord your God. You will find him when you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you seek, you'll find. When you are in distress and all these things have happened to you in the future, you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. And then what happens? Let me just context here. If the people didn't do everything to provide for and feed and take care of the idol that was in their home. They were terrified that the presence of God would leave. 
If they didn't get it all right, that's why Gary's sermon last week, the grace of known expectations, our God was very different. He gave an actual covenant. But they, they were afraid that the God would leave. And so what does our God say? You will mess up. You will screw up royally. But you will call out and he will not leave you. When God says, I will not leave nor forsake, all right, he's contrasting himself to the idols that did. He will not leave you, destroy you, or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore them by oath because the Lord your God is a compassionate God. I preached to the teens a few weeks ago and one of, my, one of the things I shared with them is, is don't spend precious time on cheap treasure because that's what we do with idols. Precious time and energy and effort and affection aimed at things, squeezing life out of lifeless things. That's not what we're called to. God said he wouldn't leave or forsake. And while they were so terrified the presence of God would leave them, we have a God who actually came to dwell among us in the person of Jesus, who lived the perfect life that none of us could, who died the death we deserve for our rebellion on the cross, and who rose from the dead on the third day. So that for those who actually trust in Jesus and what he did instead of what we can do, we get to share in his victory over Satan, sin and death. It's a gospel message. And so we don't have to waste our time on these things. And if you are, I would encourage you, repent, confess, share with somebody and make a change. We cannot let idols coexist with us. And we have to stop trying to squeeze life out of lifeless things. Pray with me. My head's bowed as well, so I'm not going to see you, but I'm going to list these things off and I'm going to re reject these things one by one. And if that's you, I would just ask that you just nod your head. That's you nod your head in agreement. Lord, God, I thank you for the opportunity to gather here. Lord, I pray that we are challenged and moved to do something, to make a change to honor you with not just part of who we are, but all of who we are. Lord, I pray for those, Lord, who, who, who struggle with a, uh, a dependence and a, uh, on, on caffeine and on screens, Lord, people who have found their affections and their hope drawn to those things, who, who perhaps just spend too much of themselves and just can't find rest because of these two things. And we know there's plenty other things that affect rest, Lord. We just reject that. We reject that in Jesus' name. Lord, for the people, God, who've made money their idol, who've clinged so tightly to it to put their hope of stability and safety and their future in its grips, Lord, we just reject that. Lord, we ask that you would teach us to be generous. Lord, for, for those of us, God, who, who struggle with, with things, with space, with having to give off a particular image, Lord. For those of us who found ourselves worshiping the homes that we inhabit, Lord, instead of using them for your good purpose, God, we, we, we reject that, Lord. We pray, teach us to be hospitable. For those of us, Lord, who up to this point who've worked so hard and have sacrificed so much, God, but perhaps in the process have become the kind of mom or dad, husband, wife that just doesn't love well at home. Lord God, we just pray that you would reveal that in our hearts and that changes would be made. And then finally, God, I would just ask that the people would leave here, Lord, and that, that apps on their phones would be deleted, that channels would be changed. Lord, that you would fill what is, is conflict and difficulty, that you would fill, replace what is bitterness 
Lord, in antipathy with grace and peace. Lord, for those who, who perhaps are, are worshiping the news or their use of social media during this time. So God, we reject these things. We know that you offer something so, so, so much better. And so Lord, today, reveal to us what that looks like and give us the boldness to take real steps forward to change it. We pray all these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Church, we are gonna take communion today in order to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so what I'm gonna ask is you can remain seated as the band plays a song. And during this song, we just encourage you to reflect on that, reflect on the cross, reflect on what that took, on the price paid and on the victory won. And when they finish, I'm gonna come back and we're gonna take the bread and the cup together.